So, how many of you guys have looked at the Where's Waldo books? Anybody? No, you're not willing to say. You're lying already. Okay, so these books, they're, they're ubiquitous, right? They're everywhere. You, you couldn't grow up in the United States or live here very long and not see one of these books. Where's Waldo? They actually started in England, and it wasn't Waldo, it was Wally. Where's Wally? These started in 1987, and briefly, this is the story. A publisher wanted to put together a picture book. So that was the initial idea. We just want, we want a book that kids open up and there's just a lot going on in it. And as they discussed it with Martin Hanford, that, they were the, that was the artist they wanted to use. They're in discussion with him. And they're like, but it would be good if there was something in each of those images that would be compelling. And so the thought was, we're going to hide something and then it becomes someone in each of those images so that it won't just be this interesting collage of images, but people will look at the image for the hidden person. And you know Wally slash Waldo. There he is. You know, he's always in the red and white stripes. He's got a little beanie cap on and his spectacles. But this is the thing. <clears throat> it works because he blends in so well with the people and the colors and everything going on in those images that he sort of fades into the background. He's easy to miss. The book's about him. The title of the book's about him, but he'd be easy to miss if you weren't careful. Uh, how many symphony orchestra fans in here? A few? Okay, good. Do you guys go to the Sunflower Music Festival here in the summer? Thank you. Guys, Topeka, I'm serious. You got world-class symphony orchestras here every summer. In June, every summer. Seriously, musicians from around the country and around the world are here for one week, and it is outstanding. If you go to one of these symphony orchestras, though, routinely you'll see a group of dozens and dozens performers, and you may not know the name of a single one of them. In fact, if you know the name of any, usually it's the conductor and maybe the first chair, the concertmaster, the first chair violin. But usually you're looking at a large group. You don't know the name of anybody there because there's so many of them. And it's easy to miss this instrument or that instrument because they're part of a much larger whole. Uh, in fact, last summer we were at the uh, festival here at White Concert Hall and my daughter was a music major at Washburn and I thought, man, if she was here, she would love this. So I took an image, took a picture and texted it to her and said, I'm thinking of you. You know, they're performing on stage and, and she shot back. She says, oh, it's so nice to see Professor Metter. I was like, I'm in the house and I didn't know your professor was there. She looks at the picture and she can find her. She's like, there's Waldo, you know, he's there. She, she's looking for him. But all of this is to say that there are times, in fact, probably more often than not in your life and mine, what you'll find is this, that we're called to occupy roles that others will see merely as supportive. We fade into the background. We're not first violin. We're not first fiddle. We're second or third that the roles we fill may not look very important in the larger scheme of things, that'd be normal. But it would be a huge mistake to assume that the symphony orchestra could do without one of those strings or brass or percussionists. And what you'll find is most of us are going to serve in roles in life that others would consider supportive or subordinate. We're not the marquee name up on the billboard. And faithfulness for us really is determined by what are we bringing to the roles 
that we think others aren't going to notice. We won't be noticed for, we won't be famous for. There's no accolades horizontally for the role that we are called to fulfill. The real question then is, what are we bringing to that role? Remember there's an old saying among actors that there's no small parts or roles, only small actors. And that really goes to the thought of motive. The actor is going to infuse that role with as much of himself and his gift and his ability as he can to make that small role as meaningful as it can be. And that's really the kind of attitude we want to cultivate when we think about faithfulness to God in the image of Christ. It's that there are no small roles. That if our part appears to everyone else or even in our own estimation to be merely supportive, it's not merely supportive to God. What you and I bring says everything about our attitude not about life so much as about what our attitude is towards God. What do we owe God? What is God worthy of related to your life and mine in roles no one else may think are significant? So we're in the Heroes and Villains series this morning. This is the 48th lesson and we're looking at the life of Joseph this morning, husband to Jesus' mother Mary. Of course, that makes him Jesus' stepfather. He's father to Jesus' unnamed sisters, at least two, and four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. By the way, James and Jude, of course, being New Testament letter writers, Jesus' half-brothers. Joseph gets lost, frankly, in the larger narrative of Jesus' birth, and really the whole story of redemption. He serves a minor role, but when you see the way he fulfills that role, it's a real encouragement to us to bring everything we've got to bear on the supportive, perhaps, roles God calls us to. We'll look at him in three different ways. What kind of a man he was, the pattern of faithfulness you see in his life, and then what his role looked like or how it fit into the much larger story he was a part of. This is the main point we want to take away this morning. A faithfulness when God is our only audience is the epitome of Christ-like faithfulness. That is, what do we bring to the role, the function, the point of obedience we know God has put on our plate for us? What do we bring when no one else knows and maybe no one else cares? It's faithfulness at that level that's really the prime indicator of what our relationship is towards God as far as motive to live to please Him. And we talked about the very first lesson in this series 47 messages ago. Jesus is the great superhero. And Christians have Christ's life in us. We have a new birth and Christ's life is in us. His Spirit engenders that life in us. And we saw in His life that faithfulness was the key indicator of what His life looked like as a man on earth towards His Father. And faith and faithfulness are absolutely key for you and I. We talk about fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which are great. We talk about love as the greatest, faith, hope, and love in 1 Corinthians 13. But guys, it's faith and faithfulness that lays hold of all of that. If we don't have faith, and if faith isn't expressed in faithfulness, you don't get the fruit of the Spirit developing in your life. Love, the very character and quality of God, is not engendered more fully in your life without faith and faithfulness. It brings those in as fruit. So that's a key, key issue for all of us. Uh, on the timeline, I've shared the same timeline. This is the third week in a row, I think, but maybe you're getting bored of it. But this is still where we're at. The birth narrative, and by the way, in the Scriptures, what you'll tend to find is Key stories uh, tend to be in groups. That key characters, key events tend to be in groups throughout the Scripture. 
We're 400 years after Malachi, last prophet of the Old Testament. Herod's been king. Wicked king Herod's been king since 37 B.C. The births of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, and then Jesus around 4 B.C. And so Joseph's story is, of course, occurring in that same time frame. I'm going to be in Matthew 1. Really, Matthew 1 and 2 are about the only places we'll spend any time this morning. And that's page 807 if you happen to use a pew Bible. I'm going to read from the ESV. Uh, verses 1 through 17, Matthew starts out, he wants us to know who Jesus is and what his lineage is. And so he tells us that he's going to talk about the son of Abraham, the son of David. And as he does, he gets down to verse 16 and he tells us that Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And we're going to pick up here at verse 18, Matthew 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Remember, betrothal was legally binding. They don't live as husband and wife, but they're legally bound. Betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Of course, at this point, Joseph doesn't know that. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You remember Jesus is our transliterated from the Greek, but Joshua or Yeshua or Yehoshua in the Hebrew, which means God saves. That's what Jesus' name means, God saves. Um, so Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, didn't know her, had no sex with Mary until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So you get this first uh, episode of his obedience, his faithfulness. If you switch to Luke's Gospel, which we're not doing this morning, we, Luke fills in the Gospel details. Uh, the Roman census requires that though they live up in the north in Galilee and Nazareth, they've got to travel south to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem because he's a descendant of David. So he's got to go back down there for taxation purposes. And of course, that's when Mary gives birth, famously in Bethlehem. And the wise men visit. So they're down there probably for about a couple of years. And we say that because when Herod goes to kill the children, the little boys born in Bethlehem, he says two years old, and younger. So we're just guessing they'd lived down there for a couple of years. Uh, this is Matthew 2 now, picking up our story there, verse 13. When the wise men had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Which wouldn't have been long, by the way. Matthew 2, verse 19, When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord. You get the picture. The angel shows up and Joseph knows he's traveling someplace. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joe in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. That would be in the south. We'll look at that in just a second. 
and being warned in another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee up in the north, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Before we move on, just on the map, the, the green section is where uh, Archelaus, Herod's son, reigned. He was kicked out, and so that's the same area later that the Roman governors would rule over. So Herod's descendants still ruled chunks of the old Judean kingdom, but Rome took over when Archelaus was not up to their standards. They kicked him out. But for Joseph to get out and his family out of the area in which he might be subject to him, he's got to go way back up north to where they'd started originally in the area of Galilee. Okay, well, in the very small amount of story that we've got Joseph in, three key things come up. And the, the first is, is this. He's called a son of David. You see this in verses 1-17 through 17 in Matthew 1. So in the genealogy, even though Jesus isn't biologically connected to Joseph legally, for the reference at least, in part of the king or the kingdom, Jesus is seen as a descendant through Joseph, his stepfather. And guys, Joseph is just one of the loveliest figures you'll read in the Bible. You know, when you read the Scripture text about anybody, if they occupy much space at all, God tells you what their warts are as well as what their assets are. Their failures as well as their faithfulness. I was reading in my Bible this morning, and it happened to me in Genesis. And Noah is a righteous man. He's a righteous man, right? He builds the boat, he obeys God, he displays faithfulness. We looked at him a couple years ago. And what does he do as soon as he gets off the boat? God tells us. And that's not the first thing. It would have taken a couple of years, but it tells us he plants some vineyards and he harvests the grape and he makes wine and he gets drunk. God tells you the good, the bad, and the ugly about his people. There's very few people that you'll read about in Scripture that get any ink at all on the pages in which you don't see their negative. Joseph in Genesis, Daniel in the book of Daniel, and Joseph here. All that God has to say about Joseph in this record in which it speaks of him, it's entirely positive. There's no knock against Joseph. So first is that he is the son of David. So think about this. He's a son of David, and that's a messianic title, isn't it? And, and that comes up. Do you remember on Palm Sunday what the crowds are calling Jesus? They call Him Son of David. And in verse 20, when the angel speaks to Joseph, he calls Him Son of David. He didn't have to. He could just say Joseph. But it's a reminder that Joseph is of the royal line of David. And that in other circumstances, Joseph could have been sitting on a throne judging the tribes of Israel that he is of royal and noble birth. And I think that gets lost in the story. You just see him as a name in a genealogy. But it's bigger than that. And the angel calls him son of David as an, an appellation of honor. I, I know who you are. I know whose line you come from. If you read in Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, you've got this character Aragorn. And when you meet him, he's this vagabond. Who, who's sort of known as a guy who sort of gets around the wilderness all the time and is no doubt adept at taking care of himself, but no one has a guess. They don't even know if he's a good or bad guy. Much less that he's a descendant of kings and that he is nobility walking on the earth and one day he would be king. It's a little bit of that with Joseph. He's a son of David. In other circumstances, he could have sat on the throne of Israel. And the angel says, son of David, when he doesn't have to. 
Verse 19, Joseph is called just. We looked at the same word when we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth in the same general narratives of Jesus' birth. John's coming and then Jesus' coming. And that word just comes from the Greek dikaios. And that's an important theological term in the New Testament. So when you read in Romans that Christians have been justified, the root word is the same word, dikaios. So Zechariah and Elizabeth were dikaios. They were righteous. Noah back in the Old Testament was righteous. And here it tells us that Joseph is just. He is righteous. And what we understand from that is God approves of his life. This was a guy whose life was characterized by faithfulness when he's introduced in the story. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth, he would be living faithfully under the law, the covenant of Moses. You see this a little bit. It's sort of almost parenthetical. But in Luke's Gospel, it doesn't even mention Joseph by name, by the way, in this story, the account. But Jesus' parents take Jesus to the temple for the Passover. Joseph is a guy who's practicing. He's a practicing Jew. He's a faithful Jew under the law of Moses. He's just. And the last one is this. Your study sheet talks about selflessness, thoughtful, or kind. But I, I love this one. This is my favorite about Joseph. So it, it tells us that Joe understood when Mary comes back, he knows she's pregnant. And the, the first thing it says about Joseph's response is he wants to preserve her from embarrassment and public shame. Isn't that interesting? Now, I think so we don't just run over this. You've got to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute, right? He's engaged to marry. And maybe the engagement lasts a year, let's say. Just say a year. So he'd be getting his house ready. He's saving up money. You know, when they throw the wedding feast, it's days long. It's been a costly endeavor. He's anticipating. You talk to any guy thinking about getting married. He's anticipating. Thinking about her. Probably having any interaction with her he can. And sort of out of the blue, she says, oh, by the way, I've got to go down and visit my relative Elizabeth. That Really? Now? But yeah, she does. So she heads south for three months, we know from Luke's Gospel, right? So Joseph, he's missing her and he's waiting for her to come back and one day she comes back and, and he sees her and he runs up to greet her and, and he notices she looks a little tubby around the middle. And she didn't look that way when she left. And she's pregnant. So again, put yourself in his shoes. All your hopes for your future are on this little gal. And she comes back and you know she's pregnant and you aren't married. It's not your child. And your only assumption is she's been unfaithful. And so in your mind, what does that look like? <laughs> you just you slowly die, right? You go through this observation, reflection, confusion, sort of a, a, a conclusion on what this must mean. And, and your dreams for your future, they're just crumbling before your eyes as you see your intended and assume she's been unfaithful and, and I, I can't keep going with this. That's significant. You know, the story doesn't tell us a lot about that, but that's what's going on. So that when he says the first thing out of his mouth, this is where you see Joseph shine. So it just tells you a little bit about his lineage. tells you he's just, that's great. But here is where you really see him shine because the only thing it says about his response to Mary and the perceived unfaithfulness that her pregnancy represents is he's just concerned that she not suffer any more public shame or embarrassment than was absolutely necessary. 
that he would shoulder for himself anything he could to protect her. Guys, this is, this is good. This is good. I love this. Uh, kindness is an underestimated character trait or quality related to the way we interact with others. And Joseph is kind. Uh, in fact, <laughs> uh, Christ-like character and love, I'll mention this in a minute, but you know, what does Jesus do for us? He lays His life down for us. He's not responsible for our sins, but He takes them on Himself anyway. And we know that one of the fruits of the character and the life of Jesus in us is kindness. And that's exactly what you see here in Joseph. He didn't have to respond this way. And no one would have blamed him if he was upset or angry, disappointed, which I'm sure he was at least, disappointed. But all you've got is this expression of care for the one he assumes has sinned against him. This is, this is good. If you're a young gal or you're an older gal who's, who could be married or married again, and you're considering a guy, if he's not kind, run away. He shouldn't be a consideration. It, you shouldn't, do not entertain a guy that's not kind. You know, I'm the father of four girls. I love my girls. And Proverbs 19.22 is one I shared with them routinely. What is desirable in a man is kindness. We would read 1 Peter 3 together. We read through the Bible together all the time. We get to 1 Peter 3. It says, wives, you know, respect your husband. You know, Sarah called Abraham Lord and followed his lead. Wives are always called to use the word you want. Submission, respect, support. We'd read those passages. I'd say, girls, what kind of a guy do you want to call your husband? If he's not kind, he shouldn't even be a consideration. You're, you're going to love, respect, support him for the rest of your life. You want him to be like Joseph, thoughtful, kind, willing to take a hit so you don't have to. And for guys, Jesus is the most masculine guy that's ever walked the earth, right? Nobody has taken more hits than Jesus. And Joseph displays that same Christ-like faithfulness. Jesus takes the hit for us, and Joseph was willing to take the hit in the way that he could for Mary because he loved her. So for us as guys, whether we're married or not, Joseph as an example of Christ-like faithfulness in kindness is huge. And do I entertain that notion about the way I look at my wife, my sisters in the faith, my sisters from the family I grew up in, my mom? Do I have that sense of kindness that I'll serve them in any of the ways I can? Because that's what Jesus would do. He would show them kindness whenever He can. Joseph just shines in this. I, I love this whole example. So, three things. He's a descendant of David, a son of David. He's righteous. He's just. And he displays this crazy Christ-like faithfulness towards Mary in her extremes. The other thing you see in Joseph's life is this pattern of faithful obedience. So, in the first dream, God tells Joe, you know, by the way, the story you're in, it's not your story anymore. I'm taking over. You had your plans for your life, and now these are my plans for your life. You're not just going to get married, marry, and you're going to have your life as you see it, but no, you're now part of my bigger story, my narrative. And your wife and your family, they're not just for your dreams, they're for my consummation of the, my plans for redemption from eternity past. Now, when Joseph hears the first dream, <laughs> that would have been a relief, right? Mary wasn't unfaithful. And my life's... It's been okay so far, but now God catches me up into this grand plan of redemption. 
And I get a role. We talked about this with Mary. It's a privilege to participate in what God does on the earth. For God to call us into His works on the earth, this is high privilege. We saw that in Mary, but it's true for Joseph too. And you could imagine it, the way it alleviated his sense of things. It's not The bottom hasn't fallen out of my life the way I thought. I'm caught up in something bigger than I understood or could have known about before. Joseph's life isn't smaller than he thought. It's bigger than he could have dreamed of. Verse 24 and 25, this is the pattern. Joseph wakes from sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Took his wife, didn't know her, and called his name Jesus. So Joseph's role now is to become the stepfather for the Savior of the world. That's, that's, that's a privilege, right? I'm raising... So Joseph now goes from Mary was unfaithful to I'm raising the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent. I'm, I'm raising the one who would come from the tribe of Judah from whom the scepter would never leave. I'm, I'm taking care of, I'm responsible for the one from the house of David, the son of David, who will establish God's kingdom that will last forever. He suddenly gets, gets it. I'm caught up in something much, much bigger than I'd ever imagined. God had a higher purpose for His marriage and family than His hopes and dreams. And by the way, I think this is true for almost all of us. Whatever your grand plan is for your life, God has a better one. You know, with our vision and, and, and our understanding of life as it is, we think, okay, this would be a great life. I'll do this. I'll go here. God will do this for me. God will do that for me. <laughs> Usually, you know those plans? It's like the five-year business plan. God just wrecks it. Just takes it away. And you realize, okay, that's not, that's not the plan. God, God's plans are bigger. They're better. They're more meaningful than the plans we come up with on our own. So his wife and his family are part of God's eternal plan and Yahweh's promises from the ages. In fact, from eternity past. And Joe lands a supporting role right in the middle of it. And this is the pattern you see here with the old Boy Scout there. God has a job for Joseph. He communicates his directives and Joseph immediately obeys. You guys remember, the, I, I, I keep wanting to say the children's song. It's not actually a children's song. but The old hymn that children typically sing in Sunday school, Trust and Obey, says what He says we will do, where He sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Now that's a lovely song, right? It's a lovely sentiment. But to what degree does that actually reflect your life and mine? Trust and obey. God says it and I get up and do it. That's exactly what Joseph does. He trusts and he obeys. In fact, I love in Matthew 2, you know, God, God tells you He wants you to do something. And you're like, oh, I'll get around to that. Listen, listen to this in Matthew 2. So the angel shows up, appears to Joe, says, hey, they're in Bethlehem. Uh, get up and go to Egypt. Herod wants to kill the child. Did you catch in verse 14? He rose and took the child and his mother by night. <laughs> God says, get up. And he gets up. He wakes them up from asleep. They pack their stuff and they're gone. You know, like people back in the Depression when they'd leave the apartment at night because they couldn't pay the rent. This is, you know, his neighbors wake up in the morning. Where's Joe and Mary? Well, I don't know. They're not here. Because he got up. As soon as the angel said, get up and leave, he got up and he left. Talk about trust and obey. You see the same thing in verses 19 through 23 again. Rise and take the child, you know, so that they end up back in Nazareth and Galilee. But what you've got in Joseph is this epitome 
of Christ-like faithfulness. He shoulders in the ways he's able to. The embarrassment or the shame. And by the way, this didn't end when they got married, did it? Because there was always this sideways look at Mary and at Jesus. Nobody knows who he is when he's growing up. They just know she was pregnant and they weren't married. And Joseph married her anyway. And there's the illegitimate child. So they look at Mary strange, they look at Jesus strange, and they look at Joseph like, you poor thing. You know what I'm saying? This would have gone on as long as he lived. He lays down his life in the ways he can for Mary, which is what Jesus does for us, exactly the same. He makes no complaint, utters no disappointment. He simply and willingly takes up the unique responsibility God lays on him. He, he is a paradigm of faithfulness. So before we move on, and we will, how are we doing it simply trusting and obeying? So, so the, the angel doesn't have to show up to you and me to tell us what to do. Because you're reading your Bible, right? Right. She's got it. I would say she doesn't count, but she does count, but she's in my home, so she hears it all the time. <clears throat> you need no angelic visitor. You need no dream in the night. God speaks in His Word. So let me just ask you, are you reading your Bible? So we meet with God in the Scripture and we listen to what He says to us. And God tells us what to do, doesn't He? If you're a Christian, God's told, told us to do all kinds of very specific things. You don't have to wait for the miracle or God's going to call me to Africa or God's going to do this to trust and obey like Joseph, like Jesus. So if you're married, are, are you loving your spouse? Are you supporting your spouse? It's not always easy, but that's what you're told to do. By the way, you know, when God repeats things, it's to make a point that we get it, right? So in the family texts in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 and in 1 Peter 3, do you think it's significant God always says the same things to husbands? Love your wives. That's because husbands tend not to love their wives. He tells wives always the same thing, whether it's respect, submit, or follow. Follow your husband. That's not always easy. And he tells kids the same things every time. Obey your parents. If you're a child, even if you're 18, if you're living at home under your parents' roof, you should be showing respect, esteem, and obedience to your parents because that's what God says to do. We don't have to figure any of these things out. God's told us a number of things to do. To love our neighbors. To serve where we're planted with the spiritual gifts we've been given. This is, to me, one of the biggest failures of the church generally. And it's taught through Scripture it's that every person in the body of Christ is not only a servant in the image of Jesus, because we are, but that you've been given a specific method of serving others in the body of Christ. Uh, leadership, uh, language, encouragement, support, administration. You can go through 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, verse 10. To see this call that every Christian has an ability uniquely given by God to serve others. And what happens for most of us is we never determine what the gift is or we say something like, if I don't play in the orchestra, no one will know. Because they won't hear my fiddle, they won't hear my oboe because there's other oboes. Which absolutely misses the point. We serve the conductor. The conductor wants those chairs filled and every instrument playing the part he's given. And guys, even in Lion and Lamb, I'll just tell you, I don't think near enough of us are fully invested in the spiritual gifts and the service God means for us to be. In fact, at our leadership meeting yesterday, you know, Ephesians 4 says that certain gifts equip others. 
And I've stated, I stated yesterday, and I've stated in these contexts before, if the saints of lion and lamb aren't equipped to serve, the elders have failed our duty. Because the leadership in church is meant to equip the church. Leaders don't do all the work of the church. The church does the work of the church. And, and when Sunday morning is a defining meeting for the church, sort of necessarily so, because the whole family comes together. But it's terrible at everybody serving each other. You might say, I, you know, I show up, and you might even say I serve in Sunday school or something else, which is great. It takes a ton of people every Sunday just for us to get together. But you're gifted and equipped to serve others. Do you know what that is? And are you working at it? Because God expects you to be. So there's all kinds of things without angelic visions, without God knocking on my door, that we're constrained, we should be constrained by faithfulness to be a part of. Are we doing those things that God's clearly lined out for us? Last on Joseph, uh, for all his exemplary faithfulness to God, he really plays a secondary supportive role in this grand story. Like Waldo being hard to see in those pictures, Joseph is actually really easy to lose in this birth narrative. And let me just explain why I come to this conclusion. His role in God's drama is like a, a silent extra in a big movie scene. You know the silent extras? So the, the, the bill goes out, we need extras. We don't care who you are. We don't care what you look like. We just need people. We need bodies. That's what Joseph's like. You know how many times Joseph speaks in these narratives? Zero. Mary gets to talk. What's fair about that? She gets to talk more than once. She talks repeatedly. Joseph never utters a word. Not one word. Now he's important in the story, but he never gets to say a single word. Uh, in Luke's birth narrative, he's Mary's fiance. Guys, he's not mentioned in Mark at all. He doesn't exist in the book of Mark. Um, he gets dreams. He doesn't get face-to-face -face visitation. Is that interesting? I think God means us to see it's a secondary role. So Zechariah and Mary get an angel named face-to-face. -face. What's Joseph get? He gets an unnamed angel in dreams. What's fair about that? I want to see an angel. Mary got to see an angel. Zechariah got to see an angel. I don't get to see an angel. Aside from the birth narratives, Joseph disappears from the story altogether. We assume he died before Jesus' public ministry. The only time his name is used after Jesus' birth is as Jesus' follower. I'm sorry, is as to identify Jesus that he's from Joseph. And guys, usually this is derogatory. It's who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's only the son of Joseph the carpenter. Joseph's name is used derogatorily to say Jesus is not all that. That's the ink he gets in the gospel narratives. We know he's a craftsman, Matthew 13.55, or a carpenter. So we assume he's got a big family. We assume this is a blue-collar worker. He's working to support and provide for a family. And he wants, he's trying to raise them in the faith. You know, from John's Gospel, his siblings don't believe in him when he's an adult. But Joseph is just trying to be a faithful follower of Yahweh and introduce his kids to Yahweh. And, and he's working to pay the bills. He's just going through life like most of us are. He appears on the stage briefly without a speaking role and like Waldo, he doesn't stand out in the crowd. 
And it's not that he's not important because he has a key role to play. He has a privileged position. Guys, he's named in the Bible. You and I aren't. He still has a privileged role to play. But compared to other roles, he doesn't look that important. And I think this is in part the thing for me. The grand challenge of faithfulness in the life of Joseph from Mike's vantage point is to play second fiddle, to not stand out in the crowd, to be given a supporting role that most people would consider insignificant or forgettable. This is a quote from George Eliot, who, by the way, was a woman, not a man. That was her pen name. Talking about one of her characters, the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden and rest in unvisited tombs. That could be most of us, right? That could be most of us. Listen to this from Michael Horton in his book, Ordinary. He says, Facing another day with ordinary callings to ordinary people all around us is much more difficult than chasing my own dreams that I have envisioned for the grand story of my life. Joseph had a plan for his life. You and I tend to have plans for our lives, and, and I just guarantee God's plan is not the same as your plan for your life, and God's plan is better. The reason unobtrusive faithfulness like Joseph's in quiet places and quiet roles is so important is that it's a good indicator of who we're really serving. This is my take. If we're like Joseph, happy to serve quietly, an instrument in the orchestra or a face in the crowd, it's probably because our goal is to serve and honor God like Jesus did. If we find that we always crave a bigger stage or a louder part or that I'm unhappy in my current role, it would be good to ask who I'm really serving and where my faithfulness really lies. We're not the conductor in God's great story and we're not first chair, but we are significant. And the God who loves us and saves us, and this takes faith to believe, friends, absolutely. The, the God who loves us and saves us in Christ gives us roles in life for which we are perfectly suited. That is what you'll find, and I think I was talking to Rick Mills about this after one of the messages, when you serve and fill the role God gives you, you find joy because you realize you're doing what God's made you to do. You have a sense of fulfillment or, or accomplishment, sort of a satisfaction, because you realize I'm a fiddle and I'm fiddling. And I'm good at this. Or I'm an oboe. Or whatever that gift is and that role is, you realize there's a sense of joy and contentment because you're doing what God's not only made you to do, but called you to do. That's not insignificant. He gives us relationships. He gives us all kinds of ways to serve. I, I want to wind down. I've probably gone too long. Um, where is God calling me to serve Him? And am I taking up that charge? Where is God calling me to serve? What does that role look like? How do I faithfully fill it up like Joseph did? Like Jesus did? Guys, for some of us, there's this element first. What disappointment in my calling do I need to give to God so I can proceed faithfully? This is, this is a dynamic for many of us. Maybe most of us. I have a plan for my life. God submarines my plan. 
And guess what? My initial response is, I'm disappointed. Or I'm angry. Or I'm frustrated. And guys, it's important to take that to God and say, Lord, I'm angry. I've said that to God before. You're changing my life. You're shaking my world. This is not what I wanted. He always wins those arguments. It's not like you win. but, But giving that to God in prayer is healthy. Lord, I am disappointed. I'm confused. I didn't think it'd be like this. We get that off our chest. We give that to God so that we can go on faithfully. That confession, Lord, this is where I'm at. I need Your help to get where You want me to be. Am I content to serve for God's pleasure whether anyone else knows or applauds my efforts? In life, you're going to see that most of what you do won't get accolades from others. In fact, it may get the very opposite. But this is the thing. When you stand before God in heaven, you won't care what other people thought or said about your service in Christ's cause. You know, we quote the, the text that says, well done, good and faithful servant. And I, I quote it too, and I'm okay with that on one hand. But God, your Father, will look at you as His son or daughter. And to, to have His approval simply because you were faithful with what He called you to do, guys, nothing else you sacrificed on earth will be worth that. To stand before God, your Father, Christ, your Savior, and simply to be rewarded and praised for faithfulness. God loves us all. Can't love us any less or any more. But to have that sense of approval, Father, I did what You wanted me to do. That nothing, nothing you get on earth can replace that. If we reject the temptation to believe fame is significance, and it strikes me, you remember Peter says in Acts 2, <laughs> he says, be saved from this perverse generation. Do you know that the generation you and I live in is a perverse, Christ-rejecting generation? If we think fame in this world is the measure of success, we're sick. We're soul-sick. We're biblically uninformed. If we reject the temptation to believe fame is significance, we're free to embrace faithfulness to God in any and every place He puts us, like Joseph did, like Jesus did. Well, guys, uh, the worship team can come up and let's, let's as a group, the rest of us stand and let's close by reading Philippians 2. When we think of the life of Christ and what Christ-like faithfulness looks like and some, to some degree what it requires, Philippians 2 is just an outstanding reminder. Let's read that together. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.